Hello everyone, uh, my name is Keith Hopper. I'm here today on behalf of the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith in London. As part of its remit, the Irish Cultural Centre provides a platform for Irish writers to launch, promote and discuss their work. Its inaugural literary festival in autumn 2020 showcased a number of Irish writers from all parts of Ireland, from Canada, from America. And this slightly shorter series is going to focus on leading voices and writers from Northern Ireland. So today I'm in conversation with Lucy Caldwell, uh, born in Belfast in 1981. Lucy is the multi-award winning author of three novels, several stage plays and radio dramas, and a collection of short stories, Multitudes, which was published by Faber in 2016. She's also the editor of Being Various, New Irish Short Stories, again published by Faber in 2019. She was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2018, and Lucy's latest collection of short stories, Intimacies, will be published by Faber in May, I think. This May, this May? yes. Yes, <laughs> wonderful. So, Lucy, it's great to have you here. Um, in the normal course of events, of course, we'd be having this conversation live on stage at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, a wonderful venue in front of an audience. And here we are on Zoom speaking through our computer screens. Um, how has lockdown and this ongoing pandemic saga been for you? Oh, I mean, I think we're all at that stage now where it's just a, just a grind, you know, it's yeah. just um, the, the homeschooling, the homeworking, the expecting that we will be out of this by now, you know, yeah. um, my, when lockdown happened last year, my, my collection of short stories was just about to be published. Um, and then they delayed it. First of all, they delayed it till July and then the autumn and then a whole year. And here we are a whole year later. Um, yeah. But I think I tell myself every day where um, we've done the 12 darkest weeks of the year, that every yeah. day there's a bit more light. Um, yeah. Both of my parents have been vaccinated now as of yesterday. And I, it's, oh. it's everything is starting to, to get better. So it can't be much longer before we're back in the, the lovely centre in Hammersmith, a glass yeah. of wine and uh, oh. people, real people in a room. It's going to feel so special. Real people in a real room with real wine and, and no masks. I look forward to that, Lucy. Um, and uh, it's, it's great that people are getting vaccinated. Um, I mean, I think it's odd things, you know, I've attended, I think, four or five book launches on Zoom. I, I mean, it's it's strange and, and it must be difficult. What was lockdown a good opportunity to write, or was it so busy with homeschooling and everything else? Yeah, do you know what it was? It was so strange. I've written over the past maybe seven years or so almost exclusively short stories. Yeah. I've loved writing them. It's taken me years and years before any of the short stories I've written have been any good. Um, but I've loved writing them over the last few years, and I loved editing the stories and being various. And I really didn't think I would write another novel again. Um, also, I've had Mainly, I've been looking after my two children. Um, yeah. William is now six. Um, Orla is three. Um, so I've had very little working time. And I've managed to write short stories. You know, I've managed to... Something about the, the length, the intensity of a short story, yeah. and mine tend to be quite short. I've managed to hold that open, to hold that, you know, yeah. I've managed to do that. And something about the slog of a novel just hasn't seemed possible. But then really strangely, last year, I wrote a short story based on the London Blitz. Yeah. And it came, funnily enough, I think from reading one of the books my son was obsessed with for about a year was Peepo, the Janet and Alan Albert, you know, here's yeah. a baby, one, two, three. And it's set during the London Blitz. And I wrote a short story about the London Blitz. And then I started thinking, hang on, there was a bulk 
class splits, which I had never, you know, done in history. I remember there's um, there's a brilliant novel by Brian Moore called The Emperor of Ice Cream. Yes. It's very autobiographical. That's um, his experiences of being a young ARP warden in the Blitz. And then I remembered a book that I'd loved by Joan Lingard, who's famous for her Kevin and Sadie series. But actually, I think her best book is The File on Fraulein Berg. And it's about some school children who become convinced that their teacher is a German spy. Actually, she's a Jewish refugee. Um, really brilliant book. And I started thinking that the Belfast Blitz, it's still just about within living memory. And I started um, finding and interviewing people, men and women, now in their 80s, late 80s, who had been children in the Blitz. Wow. And during this whole strange lockdown, I was thinking, my son, who was five, who turned six, what is he going to remember of this strange, strange time? Yeah. And so I started asking people what their memories were. I started reading diaries and reading um, online archives and what I could find of um, public records online and blogs. And, and this world suddenly started accruing momentum, velocity. And then for the Belfast Blitz took place during April to May 1941. So it was a whole year after the London Blitz. Had, well, the London Blitz started in 1940, September. Um, and the war had broken out, of course, a whole year before that. And yeah. so there was a strange sense as well, a bit like how it felt for us that you saw this thing approaching, but you never quite thought it would happen. You never quite thought it would, you never quite thought it would be that bad. Then suddenly it was upon you. And, and it was so strange The our lockdown, which was April to May, first lockdown, it seemed this extraordinary window opened for me between worlds. Mm. And so, and suddenly, of course, my husband was at home. I had, even though we were homeschooling, home nursery educating, I, we divided our time evenly. Um, and so I would get up in the morning, go to my desk, and I had more writing time than I'd had done in maybe seven years. And it became a bit of a lifeline for me. Every day, I would be at my desk by 7.30, 8 o'clock. And for a few hours each day, I would live and breathe the blitz. And I wrote it almost in real time. Um, because the Belfast Blitz was four blitzes between April to May 1941. And I mapped the history books and mapped people's memories um, over these, these extraordinary few weeks that we had. Mm. And so actually, in those two months, I wrote the first draft of what will be my first novel in a decade, which is coming out next year. Um, oh. Faber will be announcing it shortly, I think. I think it'll be announced by the time this is broadcast. Um, so in, in that very strange way, it was a... It was a a very weirdly productive time for me that's, in a way that I could really never have, have have anticipated. And it's a lovely way to mark lockdown. I think it's such mm. a lovely, I mean, the thing in itself, but such a lovely metaphor for this period, a way of recording those that's this strange time. That looks that sounds wonderful. Um I mean, amongst so you, you that gave you had structure, you had time to do that. I mean, you also teach creative writing, is that, is that right? I mean, were That's you teaching right. remotely during lockdown? No, it actually stopped. Um, oh. I was teaching an in-person course at the time at Faber, at the Faber Academy, at my publishers. And this was, it just paused because, of course, we thought that we, we would be back to normal by the summer. Then we thought we'd be back to normal by the autumn. Um, I did finish the course online this autumn. and I'm currently teaching another online course yeah. Um, I think we've all settled more into those rhythms. Um, yeah. And as it happened, one student in my course, she um, is from Hong Kong. She'd been in London studying and doing my course in the evenings. 
And she, um, when we finished the course finally online, she would set an alarm to wake herself up at 2.45 Hong Kong time, Bless take her. part in the course between 3am and 5am, which is just, she's a lovely writer. She's a really, yeah. really interesting writer and she was determined to finish the course. And so funnily, even though we were all apart, there were things like that that gave us a new sense of camaraderie, you know, that gave us new intensities. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's exhausting, but there are advantages to it. That's, that's one mm -hmm. of the great ones. So do you enjoy teaching creative writing? Does it, how has it changed your own writing in any way? Yeah. Um, when I started writing um, to earn a living, I was doing a lot of journalism. But I found that in a strange way that used the same muscles, you know, it tired the same muscles. And I had a weekly column at the time um, at The Independent, which was brilliant, which was, you know, my bread and butter, and which I was very yeah. grateful for. But I found that after a few months, I was using up my life <laughs> in ways that if I had anything that I noticed, anything that I thought, it would become a column. I would sort of skim it off and make a column out of it. Whereas fiction, you need, it needs to settle more. And so I suddenly, I found that all the stuff that might have been resources for fiction was, um, you know, it was, mm. I was using it up. Um, and so then I started teaching and I think because I hadn't written very much when I was teaching, because I was quite young, the practice that I've always been that I've always had with other writers um, has been close reading. Um, yeah. It's always been, we look at something and we work out what is the writer doing and how do they do it? And how can we yeah. do this? Um, I've just, I've been reading recently, it's on my, my desk, just out of camera shop, but um, George Saunders' brilliant book, um, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, where he talks about teaching Chekhov. And it's very similar to close reading. You know, he reads a bit and he says, what do we know? What do we assume? What, what are the techniques? What is the writer doing? And so that's what I do. So when I'm teaching with students, it's more, a, you know, it's a, a workshop. We come together and we read together and we we explore things together. So I find that actually that is very energizing for my own writing practice. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually teaching Chekhov to some students next week on my short story course. Yeah. What would be your advice? I tell them this. I pass this on. What would be your advice to students who are struggling to write their first novel or a first short story? What would be the key advice you'd give them? Um, I think, I mean, if you're, you're already probably an attentive reader, that's yeah. all it is really, um, you know, being an attentive reader. I think that the thing that really does help is having a group of like-minded people. Um, you know, the writing groups that I've been part of in my early writing life were so invaluable you know meeting up with a group of people and you swap work and you share work and you read each other's work and funnily the the most important thing is sometimes learning when to ignore what people are saying <laughs> you know yeah. when to when to just let it go in one ear and out the other when to hold fast to your guiding star to your vision of the thing is as important as anything else yeah so I think it would be um the line, I always come back actually to a line from Chekhov. Um, it's a line from the end, the ending of the seagull. Mm. And um, he says, I used to think it was about the, the glamour. I used to think it was about the fame, but it's about none of those things. It's just about having the ability to endure and to go on enduring. Yeah. I keep on, I always think of that. And when I started out, I had a, a newspaper clipping by the crime writer Walter Mosley um, pinned to my notice board. So I would see it every day. And it said, um, 
basically, I'm paraphrasing now because I've lost the newspaper clipping along the way, but he said, um, he said, write every day. And he said, you just have to, a writer is someone who writes. And he said, it's as simple and as profound as that, um, you know, writing. And it's true, it has nothing to do really with if whether or not you've won awards, whether or not you've got grants, whether or not you're even published. A writer is someone who writes. If you're a writer, it means that you're primary mode or one of them of being in the world of understanding the world is distilling it through words um you know that's how you make sense of it um, mm. other people make sense of the world in other ways but if you're a writer that's how you most profoundly or most usefully most interestingly for you make sense of the world and so it's it's knowing that you just have to do it every day if you're creating a world especially if it's a novel um it does. Walter Mosley used the phrase, it turns to smoke um, ah. if you come back to it every day. And so you have to keep this world alive. You have to find ways of fencing it off from, from your children, from your loved ones, from your flatmates, um, protecting the time in which you write. Um, maybe a very useful piece of advice is, um, and this I learned from hard experience, is um, have a cover story. You know, <laughs> <laughs> when, when someone says, what are you writing? Um, they don't really want to know. All they want to do is to be able to say with genuine relief. That sounds really interesting, you know. And I've been too many times. I've sort of, um, especially when I was starting up, people would say, "What's your novel about?" And I would start to tell them, and it would be kind of messy and complicated. And I would see their eyes start to glaze over, maybe shoot oh. sideways as they looked for an escape. Yeah. And I would start talking faster and faster, getting more and more panicked, trying to convince both of us that it was worth doing. And then, of course you know, you lose confidence in it yourself. Yeah. And so, um, so have a plug away at it every day. Know that you do it because you need to and have a cover story, have a sort of carapace for the thing you're working on. Yeah. So that when someone says, so what are you working on? You can tell them and they can say, gosh, sounds brilliant. And you can say, yeah, thank you. And that's, 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 that's what you need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you live in London now, Lucy, but you were born in Belfast in, in 1981, a big, a big year in the history of the Troubles. I mean, when did you discover you wanted to be a writer? Or was it in, in your growing up that made you? Yeah, you know, I always did. Um, my mum says that I wrote before I could write. And I taught myself how to write before I went to school. I still, it's a bit of a liability because if I'm signing books, um, if you imagine a child holding a pen and a fist, <laughs> you know, like I still, I hold my, my I've, I've been given, you know, a couple of really beautiful fountain pens over the years. I feel so sorry for them because I, I just gripped them in a fist, you know. Um, but I, my mum says that even before I could write, I would um, draw drawings and I would tell her exactly the words that I wanted where, you know, where I wanted them. Um, so I always wrote, I always used to tell stories for my sisters, make up magazines. Um, in later years when I discovered the Bronte siblings, ah. I had such a rush of recognition because yeah. I was one of um, three sisters, very close in age. Um, and very very close together and we had these elaborate imaginary worlds um, sometimes we do them with our lego figurines sometimes we draw them we'd make up these chronicles um, we'd give them to my dad so that he would like bind them in his office um, so that they would actually exist as you know genealogies and stories and sagas I always did that and then um, at school I remember one particular we were doing um Jennifer Johnson, How Many Miles to Babylon. Yeah. Our homework was to write an extra chapter. And I decided to write an, an extra ending. So an ending that happened after her ending. 
And she quoted Yeats in the in the epigraph or in the book. And so I went away and I got out um, Yeats collected poetry and um, read Yeats and wrote this ending that I, I was convinced was, was better than hers. And I knew then that's, yeah. that's all I wanted to do. And then yeah. by the time I was in um, um, sixth form, Wendy Erskine was my English teacher. I mean, you, you can't imagine a better English teacher. She's a, such a fine writer in her own right. She published her debut um, two years ago with The Singing Fly. And she she was, I think it's a measure of how brilliant an English teacher she was. The one I think about some of my favourite um, pieces of writing, um, I think of Keats. We studied Keats, um, Anthony and Cleopatra, um, Edith Wharton, The Age of Innocence, mm-hmm. all my A-level texts. Um, and, you know, in intimacies, I come back to Keats at a couple of key moments. And I think that, I, you know, sort of thinking about all that, I think I've been really, really lucky in that I had people, parents, teachers who encouraged that rather than making me feel ashamed or rather than making me feel small or rather than making me feel that there were other more worthwhile ways you know other more more worthwhile things to do because quite often you know when I've taught um beginners classes you get people who similarly to me you know I think my childhood creativity was nothing nothing you know particularly um unique I think a lot of children are like that and what happens is that it somehow gets stamped out of them. You know, they feel that it's a childish pursuit or they should put it away or they should. I've had students who have said that their parents have said they should, um, you know, they've gone into IT or they've gone into law or they've gone into, um, you know, the professions because their parents have thought that it, it wasn't the right thing for them to do or they haven't had inspirational teachers at those key moments. Um, another inspirational figure, for me earlier on was a playwright Chris Hannon and when I was at university he was a visiting fellow and um I was right he's a brilliant playwright and I was writing a play and there was a little group of us that went along to his sessions every week and um then he would say okay he would read what we'd written and so I would um you know post through his um pigeonhole at his college these sort of you know maybe five sort of scrappy sheets of A4 with you know written all over and he would meet you in the local cafe Nero, um, and which had just opened. And he he smoked these um, licorice rollies, and so he would meet you. And for maybe a really intense couple of hours, he'd be chain smoking his licorice rollies and talking to you with such enthusiasm and such intensity about your work that you had no option but to take it seriously as well. Yeah. You know, and sometimes that's the greatest gift I find that yeah. you can you can give to a writer, um, a young writer or a new writer is to take their work seriously because yeah. a son, a son, all it is, sometimes you, you think you need permission and someone taking your work seriously is sometimes all you need to take it seriously. Um, yeah. And so that's that's another thing that yeah. has, has been really so, important. So since those form of experience, you've written three novels mm-hmm. and a new one coming, uh, several plays for radio and for the stage and written and edited three short story collections. Uh, do you find it easy to move between these different forms? I find um, it's funny. I think it's an maybe an Irish thing that you're sort of allowed to work in more than one form. Yes. I really felt that in England, especially my, I was having a play on and having a novel published, and people kept asking me, "What well, are you going to? Are you going to use different names 
to publish them under or they would say um well which are you ra- which are you really <laughs> um as if I was really a novelist masquerading as a playwright or I was really a playwright yeah. you know and it was harder for people to accept that that you there is a fluidity between genres um and I found that yeah I find that it it energizes you in different ways um moving between forms it can be very hard it, especially novels and plays it's really hard to bridge the gap between those I find um plays actually have much more in common with a short story the more that I've written really? the more yeah. that I've read Chekhov the more I understand that Kevin Barry has a brilliant phrase about a play has to be or a short story has to be like a high wire act you know it's pulled so taut um yeah. if the line goes slack it's lost and I think there's something about a play and a short story that they they make their own demand they you have to read them in one fell swoop um, you yeah. can't dip in and out of them they set their pace they set their tempo and you have to accede to that you have to give yourself over to that yeah um but I, find- I read I read somewhere that the, your first collection multitudes uh has 11 stories like intimacies mm-hmm. it took 11 years to write yeah that's, I wrote um, yeah after I'd written my first novel um and I wrote it as an undergrad um finished it in my MA year um, and then I, I had this vision. I wanted to write a collection of short stories, all narrated by young women, girls mm. and young women, um, all set in Belfast. Um, and I wrote, I wrote them, and they were no good. No, I mean, none of them, none of them were any good. And also, the whole collection was less than the sum of its parts. And I had thought at that time, short stories must be easier than a novel because they're shorter. I mean, such a rookie error. They're so much more difficult. <laughs> and at, at the other end of that, now you're the editor of Being Various, new Irish short stories, came out in 2019. I really enjoyed reading that over, over Christmas. Um, I was very struck, the variety of different voices you brought in, people like Kevin Barry, but lots of new young writers I hadn't heard of before. Mm-hmm. But I was really struck by the collective vision of Ireland that they conjure up. I mean, that's one of the great joys of these things, I guess. I haven't lived in Ireland for over 20 years, but I'm actually moving back in the summer. And your anthology freaked me out a little, I suppose. I'm moving back to Sligo, my hometown, um, to work there. And, um, but the anthology made me think I'm not returning home as such. I'm, I'm moving to a different country. I mean, do you think, how do you think Ireland's changed in the past two decades? I mean, I've got this, I had this was inside my copy of Being Various. You, that like that you can see I can hold this up. That will be familiar probably to yes. Yes. your your viewer. That's that postcard, that famous old postcard. And this is um when uh my sisters made it for me when I got my first and they cut out the most studious photo of me they could find. <laughs> Very severe fringe, glasses, you know, and they tipexed in like Lisa Coyle sort of just above Brendan Bean and just below Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and um, for so long, that's been, you know, I mean, you, that postcard you still get. For, the last time I was in Galway um, for a Courch Festival, brilliant festival, um, mm. that postcard was still for sale in some of the news agents. You know, it's like that's still for so long. That's been the prevailing vision of Ireland. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to break that open. I think um, I had those Faber anthologies on my bookshelves before I was even published. You know, there's brilliant, um, the David Marcus anthologies yeah. of um, new Irish short stories. And I always used to idly think, if I could do one of those, what would it be? And I always used to think I would 
focus on women writers um because the place that I grew up in it was very you know it was very when you think of those stories it's largely with a few shiny exceptions like Mo Molum it's male religious leaders male political reader you know male political leaders soldiers on the street male voices um and the writers who are most celebrated we have so many brilliant female writers who aren't as celebrated as their male counterparts and then Sinead Gleeson published her brilliant anthology. Um, you can see it, behind, it's, I can see it on, it's on the shelves behind me, um, The Long Gaze Back, yes. Um, yes. which was Irish women writers over, I think, four centuries. Um, and I did an event with her for that in um, Belfast with all the Northern writers. And we were on this stage together. And, you know, this is 2016. And I felt all of us just at one point, midway through the event, we said, this never happens. We never have you know, all these Northern women, exclusively Northern women on a stage together. And um, we said to Sinead, you have to do a, we need a Northern anthology. And being Southerner, she didn't know if she was the right person to do it, but of course she's she's phenomenal and she was, mm-hmm. and she did this, this anthology, um, The Glass Shore. And so then when um, my editor at Faber, who also happens to edit this, um, being the, the, the series, he said to me, um, would I like to have a go at it? Like, if I did it, what would my vision be? Mm. And I thought about it, and very quickly I realised I very much did have this vision. And I wanted to include in it Irish writers who are Irish because their parents have come to Ireland from elsewhere or because they have come to Ireland from elsewhere. Mm. And the anthology opens by with one of my favourite stories in it, which is a story by Yenga, who is a Chinese-born superstar who met and fell in love with an Irishman in New York um, and came back to Ireland to raise their child. And she and started writing in English. And she is exactly the sort of contemporary voice face of Irish writing that should be on that postcard. Similarly, um, I have a brilliant story by Malata Uche Okori, who came to Ireland with her young daughter um, as an asylum seeker. Um, lived in direct provision for years and has a really nuanced, sensitive, beautiful story in the collection. Um, Ardia Kajermo, who came from Finland um, as a 20-year-old and has lived in Ireland for 40 years. And she says she's never considered an Irish writer, even though that's a place she chose to come, even though it's a place she's lived, she raises her family. And so I wanted to really break open this notion. I have a story by Kit Kit Duval, who was born in Birmingham to one Irish, one Caribbean parent. And this sense of diaspora, I think Mm. all these links between Irish and Caribbean um, communities in London, all the sense of diaspora is something that that doesn't feature to the extent it should in a sort of overview of, you know, what it means to be Irish. I think my own daughter, you know, my children, both both, um, technically Cockneys, you know, born in, um, in... London, you know, registered like right beside the Stephanie Bells. Um, my son William, my daughter, uh, we gave her an, an Irish name. She's called Orla, spelt the anglicised way. And they both have Irish passports, of course, which we're so grateful for with Brexit. But I wonder how Irish will they feel? How Irish will they feel entitled to be? You know, yeah. there's this sense of um, degrees of Irishness. 
you know, yeah. if you're if you're born outside of Ireland, you have citizenship, but you have and you have Irish parents, but you're born in London, or if you're born and you move away, or if you're born in Ireland, you know, I wanted to explore all these more complicated notions of Irishness. I was going to ask you that. I was, very, I was very, very struck by your introduction to being various, and you said that you took your starting point as the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and focusing on writers who, who published since then. But I, I liked, there was a, a wonderful phrase in it. You said, recently celebrated and newly imperiled, the Good Friday Agreement changed everything. Suddenly, psychologically, we were free to experiment with and embrace pluralities, contradictory ways of being. I mean, from that perspective, how do you feel about Brexit? Is this really threatening, especially in Northern Ireland? Yeah, Jenny, it's so interesting because, of course, I made that decision about the writers that I was going to commission. You know, this book was published in... 2019 so of course it's two years earlier that I'm making these decisions and setting my parameters so I'd made that decision before the Brexit vote before all this talk of hard borders and borders and how so it only grew in importance but I thought um thinking about the Good Friday Agreement my my title comes from a line in Louis McNeese the epigraph as well um I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. Mm. Um, and that, I should have started a couple of lines back because that stanza starts with um, world is crazier and more of it than we think, you know, and yes. he in that poem, in his work, he celebrates the possibility of not being either or, but of being both and. Mm. And I think for a very particular, maybe very narrow strand of my generation, and it, interestingly, I think it's those of us who call ourselves Northern Irish, regardless of um, religious upbringing or political affiliation necessarily, it tends to be those of us who, who sort of came of age. I was too young to vote for the Good Friday Agreement. I was 16. Um, I, was, I was doing my, I think I was doing my GCSE exams and really annoyed at the sound checking of the bands coming from Stormont because it was interfering with my learning my you know, physics formulas or whatever. <laughs> but um, what the Good Friday Agreement did is it allowed us all to not have to choose between British and Irish identities. It allowed you to be both. Um, it allowed, it felt like, there was such a relief. It, feel, it felt like something lifting. It felt like things were possible. Multiplicities were possible. Complexities were possible. And there was such a freedom in that. Um, there was such a freedom. And so much of my own identity as a writer is bound up with being Irish. You know, was, I started writing my first novel when I went away to England to university. And um, people assumed there that I was Irish. You know, I didn't have an Irish passport. Um, I'd grown up with a British passport. Um, mixed marriage, you know, one parent Catholic, one parent Protestant, but living in East Belfast, which is a lot more mixed, has always been maybe more mixed than has been um, thought or allowed. But going to a school that was um, sort of by default, mainly Protestant. Um, and yet there I was and there were three Lucys in my year and so I was known as Irish Lucy which my friends thought was hilarious and and I and I started to realize that I could be Irish that I was Irish I applied for my first Irish passport as I was writing my first novel so for me you know those those things are sort of so intricately bound together and for a lot of my friends similarly um being Irish began to be possible in ways that just wouldn't have um, five years earlier. 
Yeah. And so I think that's what the genius of the Good Friday Agreement was. And that's why it, it's, it does feel imperiled. Um, a lot of that understanding of identity and how fragile it is, that really does feed in, I felt, to your new book, Intimacies. Um, mm-hmm. Let me just read the, uh, the blurb from the paperback here, Intimacies. Mm-hmm. I mean, blurb can be embarrassing for authors, I realise, but we're, we're going to do it anyways. Intimacies exquisitely charts the steps and missteps of young women trying to find their place in the world, from a Belfast student ordering illegal drugs online to end an unwanted pregnancy, to a young mother's brush with mortality, from a Christmas Eve walking the city centre streets when everything seems possible, to a night flight from Canada, which could change a life irrevocably. These are stories of love, loss and exile, of new beginnings and lives away from home and home in, in, in quotation marks. What is the, the notion of home? It's a pretty good description, I felt. Uh, you know, t- t- tell us how the collection came together, because it does seem to be knitted together very, very beautifully. Yes, well, Multitudes was 11 stories of girlhood um, set mainly in Belfast or between Belfast and London. This is very, very much a sister volume. Multitudes, my vision of it, it could almost have been published as a novel, as a sort of Cubist portrait of growing up. Um, Joyce, of course, um, yes. Dubliners was one of my models for that. Um, and I wanted to do a... I wanted to carry on. Um, it's the both volumes are being published in Polish actually this spring, wow. um, or in one one volume, which I really like because they're very much sister volumes. Similarly um, to Multitudes, Intimacies has eleven stories. None of the narrators are named, um, although of course circumstances of their lives differ, details differ. Again, it could be a sort of Cubist portrait of of young womanhood. Um, yet continuing the project. Really, the stories are, yeah. are yeah, it's like a big sister collection. Yeah, I wonder. I I, lo- I really love the opening story like this. It's um, it's a very striking introduction to the collection. So a young mother struggling with a baby and a toddler takes refuge in a in a in a cafe, and then things really threatened overwhelm her and out of her control. I mean, would you mind reading the opening section for us, the first two pages or so, just to give us a flavour of, yeah, of the whole thing? This is, um, yeah, the story like this, it's, as you say, frazzled young mother, um, baby, toddler juggling everything, goes into a cafe, um, toddler suddenly needs the loo and um, the baby's just fallen asleep and, and a lady at the next table says, look, I'll, I'll mind the baby in a buggy, you know, you, you run with him and she, mother's so grateful, runs. To, and suddenly when she's in the loo with her toddler, she realises she's left the most precious thing that she owns with this complete stranger. She can't even remember what the woman looks like. And that's where the title comes from. She said, it's happened like this. These huge, momentous events, these things that could change the whole course of her life. Um, It hasn't even been a decision, really. Um, And then this story, I originally wrote it to be read on radio. And one of the things I love, one of the intimacies of radio is that you're right there in the listener's ear. And also the pace is controlled. Um, you can't skip ahead. And so there's a moment in this story where the story takes you through multiple different contradictory possible endings before bringing us back to what, what happens. Yeah. So this is, the, this, is the, this is the beginning. Like this. 
It happens like this. It's a Tuesday or Wednesday, one of those amorphous midweek days, not quite the weekend, but at least not Monday. November, grey rain coming down too vertically to pretend much longer to yourself or anyone else that it isn't really raining. Impossible to catch a minute's interest longer in the sad mouth, slightly ragged goldfish in a shallow ornamental pond. The pond is opposite a corporate law firm with a Dickensian name and persistent rumours of being built on Europe's largest medieval charnel house. There is a perspex floor that you can walk or crawl over, peering giddily down to where old Roman walls and bronze cast statues lie. The layers beneath, the bones. The fish in the floor are usually enough to kill half an hour. There's sometimes a bus to an old red double-decker repurposed into a puppet theatre, but not today. You're running out of ideas. The toddler is grizzling, the baby is grizzling, any moment now one or both of them will go nuclear. You lift the flap on the rain hood and reach in to stroke the baby's soft, damp cheek, and she turns her head and blindly rootles, trying to suck your fingers. You fed her before you left the house less than an hour ago. She can't be hungry, unless she's during your growth spurt. How old is she again? Poor second born. You counted her brother's age religiously, days, weeks, months, until the months flipped more pragmatically into years. But you've lost count already of how many weeks a baby is. Twelve, you think? Maybe thirteen? First time round, you agonised, laughed in disbelief, joked grimly about the tiredness. This time, there isn't the energy even for that. You're hungry, you say. Poor wee thing, you're hungry. And I, your toddler says indignantly, I hungry too. Naughty mummy, he adds, because you forgot to refill the snack box before leaving home. All it contained when you snapped it open was a long-suffering banana, blackened and bumped and rejected with a front, and some crumbs of rice cake currently disintegrating in the law firm's pond. So, although you can justify it, and I found four on one salary and a maternity pittance, into Frankie's in the covered market it is, one of the few places around here likely to be vaguely tolerant of little boys and babies, even in combination, at least until the lunch rush starts, for normal people who don't eat lunch at 11.17. Wonderful, beautiful. I mean, the story is terrifying. It brought me back to the moment when my daughter went missing as a child in the supermarket, I guess, but the sheer mm -hmm. panic, it was really so well-crafted. The study of literature, though, is a very abiding theme throughout these stories. So in May Day, for instance, a, a college student orders drugs online to end this unwanted pregnancy. And the story flickers between her childhood memories of growing up in Northern Ireland and her present study of English literature, where she, I guess, realises women's choices have always been circumscribed. Uh, there's another story, People Tell You Everything. Um, and the protagonist has written a master's thesis on two Polish poets. Uh, you yourself studied um, literature at Queen's College, Cambridge. I mean, how important is this as an element in your writing? I have had that time to reflect and study at such a high level. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, books are made from books and stories are made from stories. And these, as I said earlier, you know, about how a writer, being a writer is how you... If, if you're a writer, then writing is how you live most fully in the world, um, how you are most fully here. Yeah. And for me, that's always been reading. Um, you know, 
like when I was first pregnant, the first thing that I did is I have a whole a whole shelf now of um you know about 20, 20 books on you know being pregnant and children and re- breastfeeding and all this because the way that I've always um coped with things is I've always read you know I've always um I've always read and assimilated information and and I I sometimes think that when I'm writing I sometimes think that people often ask who are you writing for and I sometimes think I'm writing for the reader for whom this will make a difference for whom it will mean something yeah and they might not even be born yet yeah. Um, and that's something that, you know, that's something that's always there in Chekhov, that, um, you know, you might be writing something, sort of like a message in a bottle, for someone to read and understand 200 years from now, if your book survives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's that sense of, I love that sense of, you know, if I'm reading um, Cheslo Melosha, or if I'm reading Keats, time collapses. You know, you are, you are, I find it in the poems of W.S. Graham as well. You know, he writes, um, he writes brilliantly about, um, I have constructed this space in which we can meet. And there's that sense that, that time falls away. Time is irrelevant. Two consciousnesses, two consciousnesses can touch, you know, two souls can commune. Um, doesn't matter if one of them, one physical body is dead. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what it is. You can, the words are live as soon as you mm. read them. Mm. And so often I think that the most, um, the most powerful times for me have been when, with my play Leaves, for example, which is about teen suicide, when people have contacted me and have told me the ways in which that play has changed the course of their lives. <laughs> um, those are the things, that's why you do it. You know, those are the, the, yeah. the things that keep you going. Um, and, and, and so for me, it's, you you get that when you put something out into the world and it's such a privilege people sharing their stories with you and having connected with your work and also there's the idea that um that you're part of something that that it's more than you and even when you're gone someone might read one of these stories and it might come alive for them or mean something to them i i was very struck by some of the messages in the bottles that come out of these stories uh Words for Things um, reflected on the Monica Lewinsky affair and along with other women then who have been publicly shamed in the media, Tanya Harding and Amy Winehouse, Shannon Doherty, Britney Spears. And the protagonist says in that, because the thing was, it wasn't just Monica Lewinsky, it was all the other women too, who used to be sort of laughing stocks and who you suddenly realised turned out to be something else entirely. And it's a very shrewd analysis of the misogyny of popular culture, especially online. I mean, what prompted that? It's it's quite a striking intervention, I felt. It did come from one day just um, sort of out of nowhere, just realising that um, how young Monica Lewinsky was. Um, yeah, yeah. When, you know, when all of that happened and, and then I'm flipping through, there's another section um, in the book where I talk about... Um, Nell McCafferty in the mid 70s. It's yeah. so recent that even in Ireland, a woman was not allowed to order a pint in a pub. You know, yeah. it wasn't a dumb thing. Women didn't drink a pint. You could order two half pints. You could not order a pint. And so Nell McCafferty, um, I have it in, you know, she leads a charge of 30 women into a pub. They each, they ordered 30 brandies and one pint of Guinness. When the barman refused to pull a pint for a woman, they each drank a brandy and then refused to pay on the grounds that their order had not been fulfilled. Um, that's true she did that and you think of these people who 
have a different vision of how society can be and how one sort of one raise of consciousness or one different be- different perspective it can be enough to pull all of us with them to change everything to pull all of us up i mean i think some of the stories are very to the moment i mean i really enjoyed reading the children where amongst other things the protagonist mm-hmm. attends a, a protest march in london against uh, trump i was actually at that rally with my wife and daughter and it was just such a great privilege and such a di- different atmosphere from any other rally i've been at because of the, you, you, the, the, the witty placards it was such a female energy it was so different from the kind of macho stuff I've been at before. Um, just conscious of time here. I, I mean, there's so much, so many of these stories I, I really, really loved. Uh, All the people were mean and bad. I think was possibly my favourite. The frisky toddler again, um, and and the, and the encounter yeah. with the middle-aged man. Yeah, I think that story is. I mean, all of them. You don't really have favourites, but yeah, that that story is definitely one of. And again, it uses you and, I mean, it, it's it's beautifully paced, but it perfectly captures, I thought, those strange, transient encounters of kind of liminal spaces of planes and airports. Um, what about the, uh, also the title story seemed really apt way to close the collection, intimacies. It seemed to gather together a lot of the themes of the previous stories. It opens in an airport, the protagonist, another young mother, she's fascinated by Francois Gilo, the artist who found another Picasso. Um, but what I really loved was it's structured around a series of insights, insights that are hard earned, that the character dreams, I guess, of passing on to her child. And um, the final insight, section seven, it brings the story and the collection to a, a close in a very moving, I thought, and meditative fashion. Um, would you mind reading those last two pages for us? And I wanted to think, um, what would I for my daughter but for the as a message in a bottle what would I say what would I what would I pass on um so yeah it's it's seven things um and it's a kind of a, a this is a seventh and now the seventh final thing the most banal and profound of all tell the people that you love that you love them it will be the only thing in the end that counts for anything the only thing we can take with us say it now those small quotidian, transfiguring words. I wonder how old you'll be when you read this and if I'll be gone and if the dark magic that there is after all a way of telling you this, of putting it somewhere so that one day when you need it, you might understand that time is just a summary of time. Everything's forever and nothing is lost. That somehow our souls remember and they rise in our bodies to tell us that here I am, this private place achieved against the public odds, achieved and in a sense guaranteed because of them. Intimacies, first used in printed English in 1641, along with catafalque, charism, eavesdropping, along with holy of holies, infinitude, intertwine, with jubilate, tantamount, tantivy, unfurl, I give you these words and all of the words, all the words you'll live and the people you'll love and the places you'll go. Love being a holding close and simultaneously a letting go. All things, everything at once. Now is always and this a spell by which I've made it so. 
Thank you. It's, Thank uh, you. I haven't read that before. I haven't. haven't it, read it's that. it's a beautiful spell. It's an absolutely captivating spell. It works. Um, we should probably stop there, Lucy. We could keep going, I think. Um, but uh, we thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's, it's greatly appreciated. I really thank you so much. Thank you, you so much. Um, Good luck with the move. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so just to let people know, um, thank you all for listening. But the Irish Cultural Centre is delighted to be partnering with No Alibis Bookshop in Belfast for this event. And if you're interested in purchasing Lucy's Intimacies at a discount, please check out the website, the ICC website for further details. So thank you all for listening and stay well. Wherever you are, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.